since we now missed the introduction of what this is all about, that's okay. We'll pick it up. We'll pick it up. We'll pick it up in the course of exactly what we're doing. So, Chrissy has the floor. Okay. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, good morning. So, my piece is this piece all about the hinge events. And let me back up by saying that um, I entered this class with a love of writing. I think sometimes when you think about a class, it's all about journaling. Some of us have had some pretty bad experiences in writing, and we think that we don't write or we can't write or you get automatically withdrawn and you don't want to pick up a pen. That is where some people live. We've got a very academic community here at our church, so um, we may not really have too many folks that are in toward that bend, but um, we definitely want to be in a place where we don't uh, go into this with any kind of fears or trepidation like, I'm not a writer, therefore, or because you didn't do a good job in sixth grade poetry class, you therefore think the rest of your life doesn't have a place for writing. So it's important to just acknowledge and identify where you come and what you're bringing before you even think about this process. Um, secondly, some of us often, I think current, in, in the, today's current age, if you went into Barnes & Noble, into the autobiography section, you're going to get such a vast variety of people who's, who think that their lives are something that all the world should really be reading about. Mm-hmm. What happened to me, how I have changed, how wonderful I am, and what I have to contribute to literature and society. And I think that um, we have that in our own mind, talking about ourselves in Christian life. Aren't we supposed to be glorifying God? And so sometimes when we talk about our own life, we think, oh, I don't really have a voice. Um, it's common to think that. And I think that before you, uh, you go, we go forward, this, this is an opportunity not to focus so much on myself mm-hmm. as much as what has God done? Where has God brought me? What is God doing? How has he changed me? How, is, how are my reactions part of my culture and my upbringing? What have I learned from that as the culture of my home and how I grew up? How I keep repeating the same patterns that perhaps your father repeated. Mm-hmm. It's a place to, like a bunch of Play-Doh that is rolled out on the table and you've got a toy that you're stamping again and again. If you keep seeing the same patterns, think about people who are struggling in prison systems or victims that keep getting victimized. Um, you know, a lot of us perhaps come from, we, we've got a pretty healthy church body here. So we've got a lot of people who, um, you know, have experienced some trauma, but there's health and you're in the word and you're growing. But we also know that a lot of people are stuck in patterns of life cycles that can be very um, poisonous. And so this is an opportunity to kind of look at your life and see where is God, not having yourself be the focus. So that kind of transitions into this concept of a hinge event. And I had to create, I'm sorry, but I had to create a poster. I was like, I'm going to use up some of my, my um, oversized manila folders that who knows what to do with them except to cut them all down. And that's what I do. But for this, it worked out well. So essentially, a hinge event, if you think about a good swinging door like at a saloon, you know, not that I've... Really been to those saloons, but can't you picture those? What's that? Can't you picture those doors that just swing, or like in the Brady Bunch kitchen, one of those old shows had a door, kitchen door that swung. That's the idea of this type of hinge. You know, what events have happened in your own life or in my life where it may have started out really negative? You know, there was a death in the household, there was a, a loss of your father's job. And then that brought the family to a different location. You had to uproot and move. 
But because of that negative event, it ended up swinging your life into a totally different direction. And that's the concept, I think, of why they got, gave them the, this hinge event sort of name. So I have over here um, just uh, the, a hinge. <clears throat> this is a little too big for me. A transition involving an action, an idea, or an experience, an encounter that moves your life in a new direction. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks, Rob. Yeah, I'm okay. like, oh, you've got this big pile. And uh, so we've got some examples, and I already gave some. You know, a birth or a death, some sort of religious experience, uh, something traumatic, perhaps it's a diagnosis. Um, and you might be in the course of even right now experiencing one of these hinges, something that's happening to your children, something that's happening um, to your own life. So the idea of a hinge event is to, to think about those sorts of things. And then we really, in the beginning of our class, the first time we were meeting, we took six minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look back at this and I think this whole process began with like se a seven-minute activity mm -hmm. where we had a little chart and it was essentially a graph where you've got your positives and your negatives. Can everybody sort of see that? And we've got this dashed line that's kind of saying I've got my positive and my negative events reminding ourselves that they can swing, but this definitely started as a negative um, or a positive. And then along the bottom, we have your age, all the way up until your present time, the present age. So we're starting with your birth, you know, 1975, August 13th, Shazam, it was twins, and there was a birth that happened where I was born, and there was a surprise and that I'm a twin, and so that was an exciting event. And as we kind of go through, you know, when was that first moment where you felt the warmth and the touch of God? Most of us have something at a very, very early age where you felt a tug or a warmth or something where God was already drawing you to himself. Taking time to think about that. Um, you know, and as you kind of progress through your life, where were those moments where you had a traumatic death or where you, you know, for me it was the first visit to Haiti. You know, I'm 17 years old, and I'm experiencing Haiti for the first time. 22 years later, God has our family living there. There's these events that when you look back over your life, you think, oh, something was started here that's kind of continuing on. So this was a seven-minute activity where we really went through our whole life and thought, okay, I know that I got married at this stage. This is when I got my degree. This is when... My children were born. This is when this happened. And so it's just a process of putting those events as a positive or a negative to create this, this timeline or this map. Does that make sense? Yeah. Question? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rob. So this big oversight poster. I did do my own life, <laughs> only, only to start um, because, you know, how else would you make, it, make up something? But, um, and then from there, what we really did was we... we ended up taking these events and we tried to kind of clump them together. If you could take and make, you know, a, a childhood chapter, what would that childhood clump sort of look like? What would that eight, next age be of teenage years or maybe into college? Most of us, if you've attended college, college years are like their own college years. For me, I got married in college. So it was sort of like a college into marriage sort of chunked chapter. You know, after that, we were living in some real deep rebellion. So there's this mire that I needed to be able to chunk out and say, there was a season where this was what life was about. And then from there, God's bringing us to Massachusetts. And this is the chunk of that time, what that looked like. So by the listing of the events, it kind of gives you a place to sort of say, well, this kind of all fits together. And it's the creation, the life map, essentially, is the creation of these chunks or these chapters. 
in which we as a group and the class process then looks at each of those chunks and really journals through those chunks. Who were the people that were involved in that chunk of time? Where was I? What were the main relationships that I was a part of? And um, what was God doing? How did he have his hand on me even in those dark moments of, um, you know, where I was and what I was experiencing? So that's essentially my 10-minute part. Thanks. Yeah. And now we've got Tony. Tony's going to speak a little Latin to us in Lectio Divina. Yeah. All right, class. You ready? <laughs> um, every morning, um, we did a devotion. And the, the devotion had a, a fancy Latin term to it called Lectio Divina. And you can probably guess some of the words. Divino, divine, mm -hmm. where we get that word. Um, lectio, lecture, or reading. Mm -hmm. um, and so, this um, process um, that we learned... Had, had come to the point where it had four steps to it. And the four steps were to read scripture, Lectio portion. Um, the next portion or step was Meditatio, or to meditate mm -hmm. um, on that reading. In other words, explain what does it mean? What is it saying? How do we understand it for us? How do we understand it in the time that it might have been written? That kind of... Uh, deal. Then we have um, the next step is to pray or oratio, which we get a word orate mm -hmm. from. We pray on that. Um, ask for God's help in the meaning. <coughs> and then the, um, the last portion is contemplatio, which you can guess, con to contemplate on that. Um, what had just Aspired the previous three steps, and so um, all right. the history behind it. Um, where did this come from? This uh, term that we have been using, that probably nobody knows. Um, from the third century, um, Saint Ambrose taught them to Saint Augustine. So St. Augustine um, was a student um, in this process. And so it was first kind of established um, as four parts and, and more kind of structured um, in the 6th century by St. Benedict. Um, and uh, a monk called Guago II during the 12th century Hopefully I pronounced that right. And then, um, let's see if I want to include much of anything else in here. Um, I, there's, there's more history behind it, but I'm not going to take up that time. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the um, exception, uh, um, the accepting of it um, by the Pope, Pope uh, at the time in the... 12th century, I want to say. <clears throat> so we're going to do one. All right, we're going to do a quick one. And this one is Who We Are in Christ. And the reading, if you want to um, go with me, um, we're going to go to John 15 4. Mm -hmm. And Gary, will you go to Romans 6 5 through 7? <coughs> 
Maybe Todd, you have, can you go to um, Romans 8, 12 to 17? <coughs> all right, Romans 8, 15, 4. Probably all of you remember these verses. They're quite popular verses. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This word abide is means extremely close. Not just sitting next to each other, but close as in a relationship that can't be separated. Yeah. Uh, Romans, Gary, Romans 6. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which uh, you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I'm going to read a little portion in Ephesians uh, 1, uh, starting in verse 7. It begins, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom, insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ <coughs> now that we've read his word we can meditate on this and uh, I was going to ask for a little input um, not, not much at this time but at least um, what does I mean the major question what does being in Christ mean to you after reading of course, there's many, many more um, scriptures that you can go to that uh, talks about the relationship between God and man or in a personal note between yourself and God. So if anybody wants to make a comment. I could, Tony. Um, I think the idea with pe- this piece of Lectio Divina for me in experiencing it this way has been... Um, you know where where Eugene Peterson in his book almost talked about how he wished and I might be botching this but he wished that there was a different word for reading when it came to the scriptures you know you read a recipe you read you read a card from your mom even from mother's day you're reading something that you you're thinking about and even something emotional that might have depth to it but when you go to read the scripture 
it's almost as if we're asking our hearts to read in a different way, Mm -hmm. to be able to sit and meditate as we read, and having those words coming alive. Maybe it's just a nugget. He described it as... um, a dog that's savoring and licking the meat off of a bone and that breaking apart the bones and lapping up whatever the marrow is inside. When we're reading the scriptures with that sort of um, meditative attitude, it's almost as if we want to be in a place of reception and contemplation and meditation. And I think that's the, the vibe of what this process is supposed to be like. Yeah, very important. Our identity in Christ if we are um, truly born from above, that, that's view like that instead of born, born again. If we are truly um, born from above Christian, is that we try to become <coughs> like Christ. He is our example. His life we have um, uh, written down in a book for us to read. Mm-hmm. Who he was, how he acted, how he reacted is important because I think that's... Uh, at least for me, that's where I can get into trouble. Not necessarily when I think about what I'm going to do, but when I have a reaction where there isn't much time for me to think about it and I just react. Well, how did how did Jesus react in those situations? That <coughs> um, hmm. we are supposed to act like in our physical lives. And what I mean by that is how others see us, um, how we perform or go about our lives, whether we're alone or whether we are with people or whether we're at work or at church. Um, we have uh, scriptures that tell us that we should be the same in uh, Timothy and Titus on um, qualities of deacons and elders. It mentions that you know we should not change. Um, as far as what our what our what other people are seeing in us, that should not change. Um, also, in a spiritual sense, um, and this one's probably a little bit more easy for us, is that we um, identify and, and become in Christ in how we think, and that has been a big change, I think, probably for everybody, is that we're not who we used to be. Um, if you can remember prior to um, being saved, being um, <coughs> notified by God and uh, gotten your attention as to who he is and uh, what his character is like and that and it, um, you have gotten to an affection for him, you know that you're not who you used to be. That <coughs> um, we've become adopted brothers, heirs, we don't fully understand possibly what that means I know I don't maybe you understand it better than I um, but we it, it's not just that being in Christ is your interest in him is that something inside has changed you is that he initiated that he is the one that had sent the spirit into you and that then you have the reaction to that And so this is a relationship that's back and forth, being in Christ. Christ is the initiator, you're the responder. Our works that we did prior to our salvation are described as being filthy and not good works at all. And yet after salvation, we could do the same exact things, and all of a sudden it's a good work because who it's for. It's not for ourselves anymore. 
the work is for him. So it's not selfish, it's for his kingdom. Uh, the prayer part. Uh, I'm going to start, if anybody wants to join in a little bit, um, they're welcome to. So, Lord, we want to thank you so much for having your word open to us. We want to thank you for initiating this process in which we are in you. And that, um, that you are in us and, and we are in you. And we look forward to um, the full understanding of what that relationship is, Lord. And we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. The last part of it, due to time, which is the contemplation of of everything that we've done, we're just going. I'm just going to state that uh, to contemplate is, is basically to, to review the different steps that we just took, and you can do that as yourself. You can do it with others. You can, this can be form a form of a Bible study or just a morning devotion. And that's it. Thank you. And I think that anytime you uh, anytime we read scripture we have the opportunity to pray something we just read. And if, if there's nothing we can pray based on what we just read, maybe we just not having a great moment, or you know, maybe you just got read, got read through the genealogies, and, or whatever, but there's always Thank something. you, God, my name is not Hamashoma. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Barzilla, I, the Gilead. Exactly. So, you should, and so this this really encourages that, and encourages you to take a few minutes even to jot down those prayers. <laughs> it's something I've always I've done for many many years anyway. Uh, I just didn't know there was a Latin name for it. Now that I know there's a Latin name for it, I am fashionably cool. <laughs> okay, so Julie's going to take us through uh, an exercise that we all had in identifying with either a biblical character or a person and uh, or event and what impact that had on that scripture had on. Um, I wrote about, I mean, I did my exercise on Joseph. Joseph is, um, Genesis is one of my absolute favorite books in the Bible. It's all about people. And it's all about dysfunctional people. Um, There are no healthy role models in the Old Testament. And I find that very encouraging. There's stories of families and the warts and everything are presented. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no real family models presented in the New Testament other than we know so-and-so was a father, we know so-and-so was a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I think God chose to not do that so that we don't worship the family. And then the pictures he gives us of families are pretty frightening. <coughs> and yet he tells us that we are part of the family of mm-hmm. God. And so we're called into the family, but he wants us to understand <coughs> that the families that he chooses to work with are imperfect. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we don't need to be afraid of our imperfections. We need to see them. <coughs> I like Joseph because there's really, you know, he's a type of Christ. Um, he gets more press in the Old Testament, I mean, in Genesis than anybody else, really. Mm-hmm. And um, there's things. But in thinking about this, I chose to look at um, the part of Joseph that we're not familiar with. And that is all the part about his being born and the dysfunction of the family that he is born into and the state in which he's born. We have a tendency to think Joseph's life starts when, in chapter 37 when and Joseph is at, although, no, 17, but still a youth, <laughs> is sent by his father to go and check on his brothers and, while, and then he, his brothers who are shepherds. And 
when he came back, he gives a bad report. Okay, so that's the part where most of us start. But, you know, he's 17, and there's actually more to him. That How, how did he get in the setting? So <coughs> here we have Jacob, who's in um, a foreign land working for his father-in-law. He is married to two women, sisters, and then he has also two other concubines, wives, we don't really know. And Rachel's, and, and the sisters are rivals. That's always healthy. So they live together, they're rivals, and then there's other women that are thrown in. And Dinah, I mean not Dinah, um, Rebecca is unloved. And Rebecca, no, I mean Leah is an unloved woman, but she's fertile. She has six boys, and she's thinking they'll earn her her husband's love. They don't, and eventually she gets to understanding that they're <coughs> that God is her protector. And then she has Dinah. Okay, she's done. Now Rebecca begs her husband for children, and he says, "I'm not in God's place," you know. And so they then give their handmaids. There's more boys born, and then God hears Rebecca. And she, after there's been ten boys born, she now has a son. Um, <clears throat> it says, God's taken away my reproach and names him. May the Lord give me another son. Yeah. <laughs> she names him Joseph, but is already not content. Mm. May the Lord give me another son. There is no other son. So Joseph is born with a name that means, I wish you were more. And then um, lives in a setting where his there's all this disharmony, this dysfunction. Um, <coughs> Joseph does not know what healthy looks like, just like most of the people in our culture today do not know what healthy. Um, his brothers, who are older, don't exactly exhibit wonderful behavior. Um, Shechem, the story of Shechem, they go in, the Judah and um, Levi go in, kill all the men because their sister has been abused. Um, then um, Le- the oldest one um, sleeps with the father's concubine. Um, there, there's a lot of things that aren't good. <clears throat> the only awareness he has of his uncle Esau is that Jacob sends all sorts of pe- gifts and presents because he's afraid they're all going to be killed. Um, so this is his exposure to his uncle Esau. Um, his father and chapter 35 his grandfather dies his um he's he gets another brother Mm -hmm. but the coming of his brother is the death of his mother Mm -hmm. so his father Mm -hmm. spends his time grieving over the loss of his only love and now there's a new baby who is now the this is the replacement of my wife so Joseph is really left wandering around in the state of dysfunction but they have been directed God's directed Jacob to return to Bethel where he meets him, changes his name to Israel and then continues to call him Jacob most of his life after that because he doesn't change who he is inside, his heart he's um Jacob has been a very passive father. He doesn't intercede. He doesn't stop. When his sons do something wrong, he says, you made me look bad. <laughs> he doesn't really do well. But he does, he does show favoritism to his son. 
<coughs> by giving him this colored jacket, which I'm sure went over real well. <coughs> so we say, well, why did Jacob, why does Joseph do these different things and go and give the bad report? Here's the thing that's important. What Joseph said was probably true, but how he said it was probably not wise. In in Genesis, I mean in Galatians, it says, "You who are mature, restore one another gently." So Jacob, I mean Joseph, does present information to his fathers and his brothers. I've had these weird dreams. He's not wrong in what he's saying, but it's not wise in how he's saying them and when he's saying them. Well, now the brothers decide, you know, we don't really like this guy. <laughs> and so they then decide they're going to kill him. And he's, he's whisked <clears throat> off, sent off to be alone. <clears throat> God has his hand on Joseph. And I think that one of the reasons Joseph <clears throat> is removed from everything that he knows is to protect him. His brothers have already said, let's kill him. And so it wasn't a safe environment. So God removes him, and he ends up in a better place, prison. (laughs) But in the time of being separated, he learns to lean on God, that God is with him. In fact, the phrase is used over, God was with him. And because it's seen that God was with him, he was able to be used in different ways. And Joseph comes, you never hear of Joseph speaking a bad word again. He only speaks wise words. <clears throat> and he, God separated him to let him know that God is with him in the midst of what doesn't look good. And he is able to have, develop an intimate relationship with God so that when Potiphar's wife sins against him, he says, look, just ask Potiphar, she'll give you, you know, he'll give me to you. But how could you sin against God? And so he's concerned about God's reputation. And I can't interpret dreams, but God can interpret dreams. He doesn't get bitter towards others. You, you know, he doesn't get bitter towards the people who left him. I mean, he ignored him, the slaves. He doesn't get bitter towards his brother. He says, and I in the place of God. And so we have a tendency to only think of the, back, of the part afterwards when he makes these phenomenal statements But just like Moses and just like Paul, God takes Joseph away to spend time with him so that he can become intimate and dependent on God and develop his own picture and really be able to have it permeate all of his being that the Lord is with me. And so it was, you know, pick the way that it applies to you. So I remember when you were sharing that with us, you shared a couple things about how that means. It's interesting that so you, you take that particular angle on it, and uh, my sense is that has to come from somewhere out of uh, your own experience sort of relates oh. to that. Well, um, I've never been known to say the wrong thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been known to say the right thing in the wrong way mm-hmm. at the right time mm-hmm. or, or to say it in a way that wasn't... It, it was harsh. And so this was very striking to me. And then also the sense of aloneness. There's much, I just have a personality. I see things differently. I do things differently. And you don't want a lot of people like me in a group. 
but you need somebody like me in a group. Because I'm the visionary. I see the big picture. And I have had more people... I've had more occasions where people said, well, we all see it right this way, so we have to be right, you have to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And just be dismissive, and I'm looking and saying, you're missing the big picture. And one of the things that Joseph was able to do was Joseph was relational. And a very, very kind thing was said to me. They said, you are so relational. Mm -hmm. And Joseph always identifies with his people, just as Christ identifies with his people. He's concerned. He doesn't abandon his family years later. He brings them to repentance by having them be confronted with their sins so that they can truly be restored. You can't be restored if you don't repent. And then, even at the very end, he conveys, I've got the big picture. And he charges them to bring his bones back to Egypt. I mean, when they leave Egypt. He had the big picture. And so, I'm a big picture person. And my great desires to see people restored I just get in the way of it <laughs> and so so uh, who, who was your okay just just say who not anything more about it but who was your Hannah Hannah and we didn't get to see you this week on that but I had to prepare they didn't have two men on the road to Emmaus oh, oh that's right that's right that's right uh, Job Job and I, I had uh, Peter uh, share, we can share another time perhaps but uh, Brother Rob is going to thank you very much. He is going to share with us from uh, selection from Pilgrim Souls, and again, this is, these are autobiographies, uh, selections from. Yeah. Well, let me preface. When I started this course, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't have done it. It sounded like a great date night with Julie for a couple months, so we did it. I would probably now say that we're almost done. There is no no one in the class that, who has gotten more out than out of it than me. Um, it it uh, helped me to dig in. I'm not going to say this thing. To uh, to my life, reflection, uh, identify hinge events, uh, put. 13 chapters of my life together, 75 pages of journaling <laughs> on those chapters, uh, and uh, I have a 38-slide PowerPoint that's uh-huh. ready for Tuesday on that, uh, all about paths, uh, identifying that I really had no crossroads mm-hmm. in my life. It was just sort of pre-set paths, and I don't say that I'm a victim, but those sort of paths with guardrails with no exits, and I just followed paths to this point and um, I'm looking for the next path in, in proflexion the term I learned it was all about reflection and now it's proflexion looking ahead what's the next path and so I have criteria that I'm looking to try to match to the next path that it would be with Julie that it's to glorify God that I would sprint to the finish uh, that I would be able to minister and, and if that path unfolds praise God uh, I was able to sort through and discover how enormous was the tension of my parents divorce mm. when I was in my 20s and uh, for decades had to sort through that but I'm at peace I'm through that so that's all good so it, it was a great experience hinge events I I uh, from this book, there were numerous autobiographies, and uh, a lot of them were older people, people I didn't know of, but I love uh, history and the founding era, and I've, I've re- in the last year, I've done thousands of pages of reading, so I picked Ben Franklin, 
And after looking at uh, what we've written about here and what I know about Ben Franklin, I would say he is arguably equal to George Washington as the father of this country. Um, ben Franklin, a uh, phenomenal man, born in 1706 in Boston, 15th of 17 children. His parents are, bo are buried in the Granary Cemetery right next to Park Street Church on Tremont Street. His parents are there. He went to Philadelphia to, to apprentice in, in printing. Um, enormous amounts of things he did. He was a printer. He was self-taught of five languages. He invented the rocking chair, the bifocal glasses, the lightning rod. He earned degrees from Harvard and Yale. He helped form University of Pennsylvania. He created a hospital. He was the first created the first postal system, first fire department, insurance company, lending library. He quoted he coined the term positive and negative for electricity. Um, just phenomenal things he did. He created a police force, uh, an insurance company, a militia, lit city streets. He was the governor of Pennsylvania. In 1787, he helped write the Constitution of, of, of Pennsylvania. He was on a team of five in drafting the Declaration of Independence, which Thomas Jefferson headed up. Jefferson, John Adams, Ben Franklin, uh, John Livingston from, from New York, and Roger Sherman from Connecticut. So he was on that drafting team that, that Thomas Jefferson got the credit for. He also uh, prayed in, in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention when they were bogging down in the heat of the summer and ready to break up. He being a deist, as history records, and prayed. And so um, his autobiography, we, we have all of the founding fathers, most of whom, oh, he, he created the first uh, anti-slavery society, American anti-slavery society and among other things. Um, in his autobiography, at age 24, he aspired to attain moral perfection. Uh, a very disciplined man. And to do that, he set out 13 virtues. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. And he purposed once a week to go through that list that would get him through the list four times in 52 weeks. And he did that for numerous years, trying to perfect his actions in those virtues. His finding was that you can't change yourself from, inside, from outside in. Mm -hmm. uh, though he was best buddies with George Whitfield and printed all of George Whitfield's sermons, history records that necessarily he wasn't born again, mm -hmm. that he was a deist. And so, so close, but so far, um, he tried to change himself from the outside in, and one would argue that he did it as hard as anyone could. But he, he admits that he didn't do it. And um, though he didn't achieve moral perfection from the outside in, he was a man who knew humility and exhibited humility and as a result of that he was used in, this, in the Revolutionary War as a diplomat to France and it was actually the French that won the war for us toward the end of the battle in 1780-1781 uh, the French Navy was encouraged by Benjamin Franklin to come over, France and England were spitting at each other at the same time the French Navy came over pinned the English Army 
blocked, blockaded them from getting supplies, and that's how George Washington was able to win. But if it were not for Ben Franklin, dipl diplomacy to get that to happen, maybe the Patriots would have never held out. And then Ben Franklin stayed and was one of the three that signed the Treaty of Paris in 1783 with John Adams and John Jay. The phenomenal influence for the country, and he was one of the 55 of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 that, with James Madison head writing, got the Constitution put together. But let me read a paragraph. He's, he says that even if he attained humility, to tell someone that he did that would be an act of pride, so you could never actually do it. And I thought that was kind of a comical twist that he points out. But he, he says this, I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, humility but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. I made it a rule to forbear all direct contradiction to the sentiments of others and all positive assertion of my own. I even forbid myself agreeably to the old laws of our junto to the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as certainly, undoubtedly, etc. And I adopted instead of them, I conceive, I apprehend, or I imagine a thing to be so or so or it so appears to me at present. When another asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly and of showing immediately some absurdity in his proposition. And in answering, I began by observing that in certain cases or circumstances, his opinion would be right. But in the present case, there appeared or seemed to me some difference, etc. I soon found the advantage of this change in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went on more pleasantly. The modest way in which I proposed my opinions procured them a readier reception and less contradiction. I had less mortification when I was found to be in the wrong, and I was more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join with me when I happened to be in the right. <laughs> so it was a result of this hinge event in, in, when he was 24, aspiring to pick up these character qualities, that he really learned how to navigate with humility. And that paragraph, I would say, is... Diplomacy 101. And by virtue of his hinge event at 24, he prepared himself, that was 1730, that was even before the Great Awakening starting in 1740, he prepared himself to be called upon, you go to Paris and cut the deals. And so that's what he writes. The one hinge event for him was an enormous event for our country. You find in all of these people, again, whether they're Christian or not, this constant sense of they're working out meaning in some way. Uh, whether they struggle with questions of virtue or whether they're just trying to understand uh, sort of why they do what they do. Uh, some of them are... I, I had done one on this woman, Julian of Norwich, from the 14th century. She wanted to relate with Christ's suffering so much that she begged God, basically in today's language, to give her stage 4 cancer. She wanted to be this, come as close to death as she could. She wanted to suffer physical agony. She wanted to suffer emotional torment. She wanted to experience the torment of the devils and the angels themselves haunting her at the moment closest to her death so that she could better understand what it means to suffer. I mean, so you have people throughout their life that through the process of writing, and she believed that she was writing for others, it's like I think a lot of these people in some sense did, and it wasn't for their own benefit. Um, so, so this is this 10-week this, uh, thing that we're engaged in, and we're wrapping it up in the next two weeks. Uh, uh, Rob and I are both doing our presentation uh, this week as is Helen. Helen. So Helen Lavisher, if you know Helen, she's also in the class, so it's sort of a small, sort of intimate group. 
And I have to tell you that the benefit of this kind of thing <coughs> it's not something that you run into often. In our, in, certainly in our Christian circles. Um, I don't know. I mean, small groups uh, engage in sort of a different part. In my experience, anyway, with small groups. Um, I have found, honestly, I found this exercise to be more sort of um, this particular class to be beneficial to me in ways the small group hasn't been, or the small group couldn't be, but in, in areas the small group hasn't touched, and maybe I'm intended to touch, I don't know. But the sense of uh, openness, I guess the sense of openness and honesty that fosters, without a sense of judgmentalism or, you know, someone ready to whack you or, you know, just safety. Yeah, safety, trying to understand where it is that you sort of come from. And i got to say, uh, there's some real gems to be found when you recognize patterns in your life see where they came from, see how well they served others or didn't serve others, and recognizing in yourself so that you can begin a real meaningful process of whether it's repentance or growing, you know. Sometimes we can repent before we're ready. That's a little controversial. But Tony, you had a question? No, just um, one thing to contemplate on. And I, I don't think I, I coined this phrase at all, and I don't want to take credit to it, but it came it came to me that in writing a spiritual autobiography I was not the main character in my own life yep and so contemplate that a little bit yep mm. yep it's kind of biggie for all of us yeah you know? I'm and not the main character and that, that's been one of the themes it's not how do you fit into God's story but it's how is God working through your story and that big shift this course is offered approximately once a year and so this is, and the, gra- the seminary graduates um, have consistently said this was the most valuable course for them as they've gone on. Um, there are no, re- there's, you don't have to, you're not graded if you choose not to be graded. Um, it's extremely, you, you make yourself vulnerable. But I can't imagine, I, I had no idea that I would really develop such a, sense of empathy and concern and caring for the individuals here Mm. and the respect as they've shared things in their lives that were, I had no idea and that has been (laughs) 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 I'd like to hear the someone from the panel um, your opinion about, because let's face it the, the phrase coined by Joel Osteen, and by the way, taken up, taken up by so many of the mm-hmm. prosperity preachers, has been God has a destiny for you in a very oh, big yeah. brush uh-huh. sense. Yeah. Where do you see the benefit that you guys are talking about God's destiny for you in contrast to the vault? You can almost say the vulgarizing of God's sovereignty in people's lives in an overall general sense. As some of the, I, I, th- I think it's the antithesis. Yeah. There, there's nothing because you're unique in how God is working in you so that you can grow and then have a message where people see God working in your life. There's nothing like, oh, you're going to get promise of success and all these other things. The point is, how is your life, how do you come to see God working in your life bigger Mm -hmm. so that you are not as self-centered and self-absorbed as you naturally are inclined to be? Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you guys experience is pretty much like the ideal of what a small group should be like in the sense that you're intimate with one another, you're sharing uh, your life's experiences, you're 
bearing each other's burdens, maybe helping one another, you're learning about each other. I think that's a you great know, I thing. I hadn't really thought of that. Some of this certainly is, in, is to be incorporated into small group type stuff. You know what I, I mean? mean? The intimacy that you guys now have yeah. connected with one another yeah. is sort of like what I think we'd like to see yeah. happening in the small groups. Yeah. You know? I think but to some I, extent it has. I don't think you, there's a level of commitment that we all had to make mm-hmm. to do this. And you're not going to necessarily find that in every small group. True. And also, this is a finite time with a, dis- with a distinct end goal. Mm-hmm. And so the goal is that you can perhaps help see this be reproduced in some other settings and that you're more prepared to be usable. But components of it you would want to see going on, again, in another small group. Yes. Perhaps like preparation. I mean, I... I I can't only speak, you know, how many people, if you meet on Sunday afternoon and you have a certain material to read, how many people read that material two hours before the Sunday group? I mean, this class, because we're, it's the way we structure things in our mind. This is a class where you do pre-work, during work, and after work, right? And so that's just the nature of a class. You study ahead, you work ahead in it, you put a lot of hours into it. I put a lot of hours into this class. I know nobody else has. I, I know we don't do that. I don't do that kind of, I don't put that kind of, a discipline in small group. And there's a, a level of intensity that you couldn't sustain. Mm, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. In fact, if you didn't know that there was a short, that there was an end, you couldn't sustain Good point. all, yeah. all yeah. of this. But, but I do agree. There's you know, some elements we could incorporate sort of. Oh, yeah. Helping people. I think in one sense, helping people to understand, you know, whatever this thing is in your, in your character that you like Christ is working through. Or sharing with how Christ has worked through you to help us. We need those. That's why this Pilgrim Souls thing is good, I think. It's important for us to look at how other Christians have lived and what God's done and his plan of just sort of using people. And for me, it's been a demonstration of, you know, the cross is at the center of, of, of my life long before I knew it was. The cross has cast its shadow over my entire life before I even knew there was a cross. So... In terms of the discipline and the benefit of it, I just spent a week way off in Honduras at a fishing camp with seven other people. And as a result of doing this work, I recognize that everyone's on a journey and everyone's got hinge events. Yeah. And in terms of, it was like Gilligan's Island, it really was, for these seven other people. And I was the born-again Christian. And I made myself available to all of these different people who at different times would come and talk That's to awesome. me. And I was able to go and, where are you from, where are your parents? But in, yeah. And there are hinge events and get oh, right man. closer to their heart because yeah. of yeah. this. Very and, excellent And that point. wouldn't, I can tell you, that would never have been robbed. I would have been talking about the weather. Yep. So just he would have always stayed in safe The whole idea of knowing other people go through things, you know, getting in touch with your own history and seeing, you know, your own life, make you a much more loving person towards others. I think when you see how the cross is at the center of your soul. So let's have Julie close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us every flaw, every weakness, every dysfunctional thing. Um, <coughs> that is in there. You did not stop and start plan B when Adam sinned. You have, it's all crazy. It's just crazy. But you delight in letting your ways confound the wisdom of man. And we thank you that you want to open our eyes so that we look up to you 
and we look to see that you have chosen to let us rub shoulders with the people who reveal our flaws mm -hmm. and our weaknesses to us so that we can repent mm -hmm. and move for and receive and move forward and love and we ask father that we would um, and that the world would see that you choose to use imperfections um, and people getting along imperfectly and yet still loving each other as the testimony of what confounds the world and that's how they know that we have been with Christ. Mm -hmm. We ask that you would bless us as we go and worship this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, Seth and I look like we have the same coordinator today. Brother. Yeah, brother, brother. My brother, what are you doing? I'll be you. How would uh, you like to be in Russia this morning? Yeah. What did you handle it? Yeah, sure. What do you need? What do you need? Set the plate for what you have before. Okay. It'll be you, Rob, two youngsters. Okay. So. No problem. All right. When they call me forward, I'll come yeah. forward. All right. Let me receive you. Hey, kids. Hey, how's it going? Good, how you doing? What, what do you use for um, study Bible? Study Bible? Yeah, do you have one? Uh, we just we read the Bible. Okay. Oh. That's just what we use for study Bible. I'm like, we just read the Bible. Ooh, I have something good for you then. Oh, hey, how are you? Yeah, go for it. Taking care of my guy, that's enough jumping jacks. Can he just put his horn to his guitar? That's what he tried, but I want to put that instead. And also, we turn the mic down so much. So I was at a um, I was at a recording. Uh, oh, what you doing with it? <laughs> no, we don't. Why is it still going? Hmm? Yeah. Pretty good that 